Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 94. This was also the text for our sermon a few weeks ago, so I want to explain for a moment what we are doing. A few weeks ago, when we looked at this psalm, we looked at the psalm as a whole. Many different details, many different specific things that are said throughout it. The way that it laments the reality of evil, the wisdom that it expresses about who God is as the creator, and many themes like that. Well, in the course of our time together, a few weeks ago in this psalm, the one thing we did not focus on was really the main thing that this psalm is doing. And that is this psalm as specifically a prayer for God's judgments. And so our focus this morning is on that aspect of this psalm in particular. And so I'm going to read the whole psalm. What we'll be focusing on is verses 1 and 2, the prayer for God to judge. And then verse 23, the confidence expressed that God will judge. And so those two bookends of the psalm, the prayer for judgment, the confidence that God will judge, is our focus this morning. We'll be drawing on all of it, but that will be the main thing. All right, our scripture reading, anticipating our time in God's word, Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long will the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. Last December, we spent some time in the book of Revelation. This is one of the chapters we looked at. So I read this 
as a reminder of something hopefully at least some of us remember from then. But if not, I'll be explaining this later as well. Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, for your faithfulness in revealing yourself and making yourself known to us. We desire to receive this word, not simply as giving us information about you, but as being a means by which we experience your living voice speaking to us. Indeed, we desire to experience your living voice speaking to us, not only through the public reading of your word, but through its proclamation in our midst. And so we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit so that we might, by that blessing, hear your voice and respond with faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before our scripture reading, when we looked at this psalm last time, it was my sense that we looked at many different things in the midst of it, but we neglected a bit the big main question. And that is, what does it mean for us as the church of Jesus Christ to sing for God's judgment to happen? I trust that even though we spoke of this psalm a few weeks ago, even though we've sung it many times, every time we sing it, it feels a little bit strange. Even if you are enjoying it, even if you're delighting in singing it, even when there are particular moments in the psalm that so easily make sense and are sung so easily, there are nevertheless moments that feel strange. I want to emphasize that aspect of this psalm with what I called earlier the bookends of it, the beginning and the end. We prayed, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. And then in verse 23, He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So here is the question we begin with this morning. Should we sing this? Okay, I'm guessing most of us would say, well, it's in the Bible, so yes. All right, then let's ask the question differently. Why should we sing this? Why is it good to sing this? The question we began with a few weeks ago, why should we love singing this? And we must remember that one of the things happening in worship is that God is giving us a song to sing that is not what we might have sung naturally, and that that is the whole point. We enter into it, we embrace it, so that we might be changed by it. So this morning, I want to take very seriously, in a very pointed, focused way, this question. 
should we and why should we sing of God's judgments? First, I want to show us that this really is a challenging psalm. I'm afraid that some of us too easily skip over the question. I know, it's in the Bible, of course, we sing it, it's easy. Well, we need to highlight that it is challenging. Second, I want to show us that it is specifically a Christian psalm, that we sing it rightly in Christ. And that third, then, it is a fruitful psalm. It is a challenging psalm, a Christian psalm, and a fruitful. Meaning, in that third point, we're going to spend some time asking, what good does it do? Why do we sing this sort of thing so often? First, it is a challenging psalm. Many of you know that there are many who would say, including some voices in reform circles, who would say that this psalm should not be given anything like a central place because it is an Old Testament thing. That it belongs to an era that we are no longer part of and so we can simply write it off or neglect it, at best simply neglect it, or at worst say Christians should not sing it. We cannot do this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is very clear, speaking to his disciples after his resurrection, that all of the scriptures speak of him. And that includes Psalm 94, that in the Psalms in particular, we hear the voice of Christ. Now that affects how we sing them. So we're going to deal with that this morning, that we sing the psalm in the light of Christ, in union with Christ, with who Christ is, illuminating what the psalm means and how we sing it. But there is a danger even where we say that. I want you to think about this for a moment. How is there a danger here? We say, we sing it in the light of Christ, illumined by Christ. Well, it's too easy to say, well, you have Psalm 94, it's really strange and odd. We come to the New Testament, we have Christ revealing God fully, and then we sort of use that to kind of cancel out all the parts of Psalm 94 we don't like. And it's tempting to think of Christ illuminating the psalm in a way that sort of domesticates it, gets rid of the parts that seem strange to us. And this has happened often in the history of the church when uh, versions of the psalms have been written to sing, even versions that were in our uh, blue psalter hymnal before we got our new one, that sort of smoothed out, got rid of some of the more difficult phrases in the psalms with the idea being we are you know, Christianifying them. But we must not do this. In fact, we must say the opposite as well, that the Psalms illumine Christ, that the Psalms help us understand who Christ is and what Christ does when he, when he comes into the world. That Psalm 94, the prayers for judgment in Psalm 94, illumine for us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. See how this goes. We cannot simply say Christ illumines the psalm and then we sort of get rid of the parts we don't like. The psalm helps us understand Christ. Well, one of the ways that happens in the psalms regarding judgment, remember we're asking this is a challenging psalm. Why does it challenge us? Well, many will say rightly that in many of the psalms praying for judgment, we have to remember that it's not a matter of a personal offense. It's not just some random Israelite who was offended by someone, now they're praying for God to judge that person. The Psalms are the Psalms of David. And when David sings and prays in the Psalms, when he prays for judgment, he does so as Israel's king, as the one who was anointed to a particular role. 
And when David prays in that way, he is praying as the one who as the king has a role to bring about judgment, who as the king represented ultimately the Christ who would come. And so attacks upon the king were not just a personal offense, but they're ultimately attacks upon the Christ. And so we hear in those psalms then, ultimately the voice of Christ pointing forward to the final judgment when evil will be defeated. Now all of that is very true. All of that is very well and good. Psalm 94 doesn't work in that way, though. Psalm 94 is not simply King David praying because the king, the anointed one representing the Christ, has been attacked by evil. Psalm 94 is rather the voice of Israel, the voice of ordinary Israelites lamenting that there is evil that seems to be winning. It is the voice of regular Israelites praying about the fact that evil seems to be in charge, that evil is in places of power, and that power is being used to oppress the weak. The psalm doesn't cry out about simply the king being attacked representing Christ, but it cries out about widows and orphans being oppressed. It cries out about God's covenant people being persecuted. And so even the idea that in these psalms we have the voice of King David pointing forward to Christ, can be used to sort of uh, squirm out of the fact that God's covenant people should ever pray such a thing. I want to set before you from Psalm 94 that the church of Jesus Christ as the church, in union with Christ, but as the church, is called to sing and pray these words. We are to pray for God's judgment. Revelation 19 speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ coming with a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. And Revelation chapter 6 portrays the souls under the altar praying, how long before you will judge and avenge. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 encourages the church with the promise that Christ will return to avenge evil. In all of these places, the New Testament says the church continues to pray for God's judgments. Psalm 94 remains the voice of the church in Christ. We are called to sing for God to judge evil. The psalm then must challenge us. We must not use uh, theological complexity as true and good as so much of it is to get away from the fact that we are called to sing this and that is challenging. So, what do we do with it? How do we sing it then? We know we can't simply reject it. I hope you're persuaded by the fact that it is in Scripture, that it points to the Christ, that New Testament speaks this way, that we cannot simply reject it. Well, what do we do? It is not simple enough, or is not good enough, simply to just then sing it. We must sing it rightly. We must sing it faithfully. We must sing it in a way that truly is in Christ and transformed by the fact that we are the church of Jesus Christ. There's many ways to sing it, to reject the idea that we should reject it and still be wrong. One of those ways is to sing it, but really rarely because we're just not comfortable with it. This is what I am convinced so many Reformed churches do. They never really talk about it. They sing it because it's there, so we have to, but it feels odd and we never quite get why we are doing so. We must not do that 
That's why we're spending this time in the psalm. We must know why we are doing what we are doing. But there is also a version, again, seems to be common, seems to be growing in certain circles. There is a version that wants to sing, yeah, we're going to sing this psalm because there's that bad guy over there, that person that we know of who's in power, and we're going to sing it against them. We're going to sing it because we want them to go down. Actually naming people. I've heard of instances of a psalm like this being sung with actual politicians being named of who was being prayed and sung about. This too is a grievous error, a danger that we must avoid. And so it seems at times we are trapped between two options. There are those who simply want to neglect such a psalm and ignore it, or there are those who want to sing it in a really creepy, presumptuous, and simplistic way. What are we to do? Well, we must look more closely at what is happening when God's word teaches us to pray this, and we must understand the way in which we pray it precisely as a Christian psalm. It's the second thing we do together this morning. The secondly, it's not just a challenging psalm, it is a Christian psalm. What is happening when we pray these words? O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Crying out long, how long shall the wicked exult? How long will they get away from it? Crying for God to judge. Well, I want to give you three horizons, three levels at which this psalm has meaning for us. All three of them being levels of meaning that properly belong to us as a Christian church. So I'd hate to do this because I know it can be distracting, but especially for those who are taking notes, I'll highlight this for you. This is point two, that it is a Christian psalm. And under point two, we have three subpoints, three horizons, three levels at which we pray this. First, the first horizon is that we are praying for God to set things right in the here and now. We are praying for God to enact justice, to maintain order, to keep the world as it should be in the here and now. We can call this the language of praying for God to restrain evil. That it often looks like Evil is simply going to undo the creation. The creation is spinning out of control. This is a prayer for God to uphold moral order. To say, look, God, you created the world in such a way that evil doesn't work. That paths of rebellion against you lead to destruction. And that the way that is good is the way that is fruitful. This is a prayer for God to maintain that. There is the language in verses 8 through 10, remember, of speaking of God as the creator. That we know that God perceives because God is the one who brought into existence perception. We know that God sees and hears because he is the one who brought into existence seeing and hearing. That there is a created order and we're praying for God to uphold that. Verse 13. To give them rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. That there is an end of destruction that wickedness leads to. At the very least, the Psalms would say, natural death. That humans eventually die and that limits just how much evil can do. The Psalm is a prayer for God to maintain that. to, To prevent evil from simply taking over. Verse 23 is where this is most clear. He will bring back on them their iniquity. In this is the language of Proverbs. 
the Proverbs that would tell us when bad things happen as a result of doing evil things, when consequences happen as a result of rebelling against God's way, those aren't random judgments, but that is rather the evil coming back on itself. It is the consequence of the thing. It is living contrary to how the world is made to be, and therefore it leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. And the psalm is a prayer for God to maintain that. That means that at some level, and I want to say that very carefully, at some level, one of the ways that God does this, that he answers this prayer, is through human means. One of the ways that God does this is by giving people times of relative peace, relatively just and fair laws of good order, of of rulers who rule faithfully and justly. There is a kind of goodness that the scriptures affirm from beginning to end to government, to the military, to law enforcement, all of these being a means by which God restrains evil and keeps evil in check. And so if one of you wants to ask me, I was hoping you would have asked me by now and you haven't, it's fine. But if someone wants to ask me, can a sniper in World War II pray one of these psalms as a blessing for God to bless him in the work he is doing? I would say, yes, maybe, sort of, kind of. Because here is the thing. All of those human means of restraining evil are always partial, are always imperfect, are always weak, and never get things entirely right. This prayer then is prayed with humility, acknowledging that we don't know how to get this right. And so while we affirm the good of civil government, Romans 13 is very clear about this, the goodness of the civil magistrate and what God can do in the way of restraining evil through them, part of the whole point is that government can be corrupt. Part of the whole point is that militaries and law enforcement can be corrupt. And so on the one hand, this prayer might be expressed by through wise laws. It also might then be answered through you know, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and resisting foolish laws. Part of the point is we don't know, that we are humbly acknowledging that God alone can do this. And so, yes, there are expressions in the here and now of peace, of righteous and just laws by which God restrains evil, but we can never get this totally right. Our efforts as humans are always imperfect, Earthly power is itself what is so often corrupt. And whenever human means are how we try to truly set things right, the result is always hell on earth. Because it is always the absolutizing, the idolizing of human power. Part of the point to the psalm is that no human can do this. No human can do this rightly. No human can do this with perfect wisdom. And even if they had perfect wisdom, no human is able to undo what is evil. That's the first horizon. It's in the here and now, sort of, always imperfectly. So then what is it a prayer for? Well, this is the second horizon. It is then, precisely because we are acknowledging that only God can do this, it is a prayer for, ultimately, the final judgment, for the new creation to come, for the day when God will act to set all things right. This is in view throughout the psalm, Psalm 96 and 98 in particular, praying for God to come to judge the earth. That is the language of God setting things right. That what Psalm 94 then is, is a prayer for the Creator 
to never abandon his creation, but to come to restore, to set it right, to make life as it was made to be. Vengeance ultimately means the bringing of justice, of righteousness, of creation as it was created to be. Now, do you sense how this requires the gospel to be present? Because you say, wait a minute, if we're praying for the day when God will act to set all things right, aren't we all part of the problem? Ah, yes, indeed. And so it is a prayer that is only possible in Christ. When God tells his people, here, you get to pray for evil to be judged, he is announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the only way it makes sense for you to pray for evil to be judged is because Christ will take that judgment on himself that you might then be righteous in God's sight, that you might be spared that judgment that all of our sin deserves. And so I know it may feel strange, but it is this direct. When Psalm 94 verse 1 tells the covenant people that you may pray for the God of vengeance to judge, that is good news. Because it is the announcement that God would take in Christ that judgment upon himself so that you might then know his grace and favor. And so we say with our catechism, we await as judge the one who has already stood trial in our place. We await as judge the one who has already paid the penalty for the evil we have shared in. And now, do you sense, do you feel how this changes how you sing the psalm? What does it mean to sing this psalm rightly? It means to sing with the awareness that but for the grace of God, you deserve this judgment. It means to sing it with humility, to say, I don't know how to set the world right. I don't know what it would even look like if it were right. I'm part of the problem. I am praying for God alone to be the one who brings justice and righteousness. That yes, he does so through human means and partial and perfect ways in the here and now, but he will only ultimately do so when Christ returns. The second horizon, praying for judgment, the final judgment of the new creation. But there is a third horizon. This is the one I'm calling in the meantime. Because the scriptures are very clear that when we, as we pray for God's final judgment, that there is a delay, that it is not happening yet, that we pray for it looking to the future. We pray for it as something that God is as of yet withholding. There are expressions of it, reminders of judgment in the world. There are expressions of it, reminder, announcement of it in the cross of Christ, the judgment poured out on him. But that ultimate judgment is being withheld. Why? Well, God's word tells us the reason is the time of mission. That this is the time of the gospel going forth. That this is the time of the spread of the kingdom. And that as the kingdom spreads, as the kingdom has victory, one of the ways that God answers this prayer, the third horizon, is in the success of the mission of the church. Now I said these words a few weeks ago. One of the ways God defeats evil is by rescuing people from evil. And I saw, now I might have misinterpreted, but I don't know, I think I usually get this right. I saw a lot of skeptical looks on people's faces. Like, I don't know, Pastor Nick, it feels like you just sort of skipped the hard part of the psalm. 
Like, like you sort of used that to what I was saying before, right? To kind of squirm away from actually having to pray for judgment. You say, no, 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 we're not praying for judgment. We're praying for actually for people to be saved. Okay, but it sure sounds like judgment. When I say that we are praying for the success of the mission of the church when we pray for God to judge, do you feel like we're escaping, we are evading having to really pray these words? Well, I want to set before you that this is not convenient or easy or simple spiritualizing. This is not using the New Testament to cancel out what Psalm 94 says. This is, in fact, the very point at which this psalm needs to challenge us. What was Israel's constant temptation? To think that what this psalm means is Israel good, Gentile nations bad. And to forget that what was Israel's story from the very beginning about? Genesis 12, God told Abraham, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that the Psalms sing of the day when the nations will be brought in. So that even at that great time of judgment, Israel going into the promised land, when Rahab professes faith, she and her family are saved. Because the real enemy is the spiritual darkness that is oppressing the world. And so it is not New Testament canceling out old. It's not simplistic spiritualizing. It is the very challenge we need. That when we pray against evil, we are praying for God to defeat the real enemy and therefore we are praying for the success of the mission of the church. This is embedded, in fact, within many of the Psalms that speak of this way. One of my favorite examples is Psalm 83, an imprecatory psalm, one of the most direct ones, praying for God to judge his enemies. It ends like this, verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Or one of the clearest examples, Psalm 2, singing of the reign of Christ. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's singing of the rod of iron by which the Christ will defeat the nations who rebel against them. Revelation 19 speaks of this being fulfilled in Christ. But then this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is running throughout these themes of judgment, that the delay of final judgment is so that humans might be saved, and that God would do that through Israel and ultimately through Christ. And so as we sing these words, we remember Ephesians 6 verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. This is the third horizon. On the one hand, first horizon, God restraining evil in the here and now. The second horizon, final judgment when Christ returns. The third horizon, in the meantime, the success of the mission of the church. On all three of those horizons, this is a Christian psalm. Third, now back to the three main points. We're out of subpoints now. Actually, no, you get seven more subpoints here. Third, a fruitful psalm. Say, okay, we do the theological work, we are convinced, we're convinced, okay, we're convinced it's a Christian psalm, we ought to be singing it. Why? So what? What does it do for us? Is that even the right question? What does it do for us? Yes. God gives it to us to form us, to shape us, to change us. He is the one at work in worship by his spirit. So, we sing 94 together. What happens? We are reminded of our identity in Christ. 
I've already been emphasizing this. I hope you sense this, feel this. The gift of a psalm like this, that God reminds you of who you are by saying you get to pray this way. Verse 5, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Verse 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage. When God gives you these words, he is announcing to you, as promise, you are his people. You are his heritage. That you have this secure identity in union with Christ. And so he gives you these words, not first of all as a challenge, something difficult to sing, but as a gift of comfort and assurance. To sing with all the generations gathered together in worship, that our children might grow up with the confidence that this is who they are as those who belong to the covenant people of God. Verse 18 When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. The language of God's covenant faithfulness of binding his people to himself. As we sing these words, even when we don't feel like it, we are reminded from the outside in, this is who you are. God's covenant people. What else does it do? Well, it reminds us of who we are. It also humbles us. When we pray for God to judge, to set things right, we are humbly acknowledging that we are not able to. Now, there are many who are worried that if a Christian church sings of God's vengeance, God's judgment, that it will then make them a vengeful people. That if the Christian church sings of God's vengeance, God's judgment, that it will make them a people eager for earthly power and vengeance. Now, before we blow off that concern, this is a danger. There are plenty, I am convinced, who sing this psalm, and what they are really after is earthly power and judgment and vengeance. And so we must be warned by that. But the answer is not to reject it. Indeed, in Romans 12, when the Apostle Paul is commending to the church an ethic, a way of living that refuses personal vengeance, He gives a particular reason. Begin at verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. On and on, describing this life. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19. Never avenge yourselves. And then what is the reason given? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Now we have to balance something here that can be difficult to balance. On the one hand, what is the ethic being given? That Christians are able to refrain from seeking vengeance because God alone can bring about justice. The fact that we pray for God to judge means we are humbly saying we cannot and we will not. But what chapter comes after Romans 12? Well, Romans 13, obviously. But what is in Romans 13? The affirmation of the civil government. Therefore, especially the Reformed tradition has said, the validity of Christians participating in the civil government. 
and being part of how God brings about in the here and now, imperfect and partial expressions of justice. But that is never the means by which we are bringing in the kingdom or the means by which we are enacting justice and righteousness. We are, in fact, as individuals, as our ethic, our way of living, saying, because God is going to judge, we don't. We do not need the ethic of vengeance because God alone will avenge. And so we must be very careful when identifying a prayer like this with specific people or causes or specific human forces in the world. We are imperfect in our ability to discern just where is the injustice. What would a just law look like in a specific circumstance? We are all sinners. We all have imperfect wisdom. We are unable to set it right. And if we tried to do so, we would simply make things worse. Indeed, this song makes community possible. Because here is what is so delightful, at least from my perspective, looking at this group sitting here. That if you all were to identify specific people you were praying this psalm against, you'd be identifying different people. If we were identifying specific enemies in the realm of politics and power and earthly influence, there are different ideas represented here about what the problem is, about how things should be. And that would naturally be the case because we are imperfect, we are sinners, our wisdom is incomplete. How can we then get along? We pray that only God can order it rightly. Only God can set it right. Only God can bring about righteousness and justice. All of our efforts are imperfect. It forms us with humility. But then there are others who will say, all right, well, that way you just described it means you must then be saying, forget about the world. Who cares what happens out there? Just one day in the future, God's going to do something, but for now, we're just fleeing from the world, escaping from the world. But the scriptures are very clear that when we pray this way, God acts in the world. In Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of the saints ascend before God's throne in heaven with the incense. This is our New Testament reading. And the censer of that incense with the prayers of the saints is thrown onto the earth. And there is a description of natural disasters, things happening in the world in response to the prayers of the church. And so, brothers and sisters, when we say, this is us humbly acknowledging we can't do it, this is not saying we don't care what happens in the world. We are saying God acts in response to the prayers of his church. That we sing and pray this because we care about the world. We sing and pray this because we know the world needs God's action. The world needs the coming of the kingdom in the world. And we are confident in a forceful, bold, confident way that God acts when we pray faithfully. That when we pray, God of vengeance, restrain evil, set things right, that it makes a difference as God responds in the world. But now, with the posture of humility, saying we don't always know how that will look. We know that judgment is delayed for the time of mission. And so we humbly acknowledge only God can do it, but confident that God acts. Another thing we do when we pray this way is we are encouraging and warning each other. Very important to remember, the Apostle Paul's language of singing is that we're singing as a way of speaking to each other. There is the encouragement. Verse 17 and 18, 
If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. In the midst of this, we sing of individual experiences of being rescued, being preserved, being protected by God, therefore to encourage each other. Verse 19, when the cares of my heart were many, your consolations cheer my soul. There is a challenge here that I never cease to delight in. That, that is an extremely personal expression that we all just sang together. Some having experienced it just this week. Others of us longing for the experience of it. And in all of that, we thereby encourage one another. We also warn each other. We know that we have brothers and sisters. We, we can safely assume at any given moment in a group this large, there are a few of us here who are flirting with this evil, who are tempted to think, to feel that maybe the evil is what is in charge, to give ourselves over to it, to, to give in to the philosophical attack of verse 11, excuse me, of verse 7. The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. And so we sing these words of judgment on that evil to embolden each other, to hold the line, to stay the course in the way of persevering against it. You have brothers and sisters right now terrified by that evil, haunted by that philosophical attack. God doesn't care. And we sing this of God's judgment on that evil to encourage and strengthen. And finally, we do so as a way of singing toward the future. Those words in verse 3, O Lord, how long? With all of this, remember the three horizons, waiting future judgment in the in-between time, we are reminded that we are awaiting people. That part of what defines who you are is that you are those who are living towards something that only God can do that only God can bring about. And we are living toward that something. So many paths to destruction. So many paths to destruction. Begin with forgetting this. Begin with forgetting that there is more. That there is a something you are made for and living toward that God in Christ has restored to you and promised you. And that one day, the taunting of the world that haunts you the taunting of the world that tempts you, the taunting of the world that oppresses you, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, it will be shown to be foolish. You will be vindicated. Faith will be made sight. That evil will be judged and it will be exposed publicly as being foolish. And with this psalm, with all of our singing, we live as pilgrim people toward that great day of God's promise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would keep us faithful on our pilgrim way, that we might live as those who are living toward your promised future, humbly acknowledging that we cannot bring, about, bring it about, and that we seek your acting in this world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.